just a quick note on this episode. The overall audio quality will be down a bit, uh, maybe sounding just a little bit muffled due to some software issues that we were having. But it's nonetheless a good uh, sound, and uh, please enjoy. Hi, listeners. Uh, this is Iron Radio from ironradio.org, and I'm Robert Fortress Fortney, a powerlifter, former competitive bodybuilder, and um, bodybuilding industry journalist. Hi, I'm Phil Stevens, founder of Lift for Hope, a strength coach and competitive powerlifter. And today with us, uh, we got Mike Robertson. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. No problem. I think I think we should say that uh, Dr. Lowry should be on with us at some point. Uh, so, hey, Rob, I'm, I just walked in the door. Oh, there, well, we there go. he is. Okay, so we're we're good to go then. We've Perfect just made time. our introductions, and uh, we got Mike on on the line here. Uh, awesome. and, uh, Dr. Lowry, he doesn't need any introduction. Everybody kind of knows who. He everybody is. knows who Dr. Lowry is. That's, That's right. right, and I hope that everybody knows who our guest is today. I mean, if not, uh, do yourself a favor. I mean, you should know who Mike is. And uh, <laughs> Mike, he's the, he's the He's a constant student of you know, training athletics and biomechanics. He uh, obtained his sports degree and in, in his master's degree in sports biomechanics at Ball State University, and uh, he's also an RFA certified physique health trainer, an RKC instructor. Um, geez, he's honored by the uh, International Youth Conditioning Association and was named to their advisory board this year. Um, Mike's also an accomplished athlete and coach in powerlifting. Uh, he's written numerous articles and books. Uh, you know, you can find him on T Nation, Elite Fitness Systems, Dragon Door, Monster Muscle, and more. Um, he's got an ongoing blog, newsletter, and podcast. Again, numerous books, DVDs, and services you can find on his site at uh, RobertsonTrainingSystems.com. You can follow the link uh, on your screen below. And uh, just Google his name, man. He's everywhere. Mike, thanks for doing that. <laughs> Hey, thanks for having me on, guys, and uh, I'm a little ashamed to uh, admit that I'm a power lifter after hearing you guys talk about uh, your lifts, so I need to uh, need to get under the bar a little bit more, it sounds like. Oh, well, there you go. But, I mean, we all, we all have something to work on at all times, you know that. Hey, it's this not what you left, it's how hard you're training. This is true. Very true. Was there anything I missed in that in that bio there, Mike? No, that was that was perfect, man. Uh, I'd like to think I'm a consummate student of uh, of just training in general, I'm fascinated by it, you know, whether it's mobility training, you know, kettlebells, barbells, whatever, you know, I just, I'm very passionate about training in general and helping people see great results, so hopefully you guys can see from my background, it's a little bit on the eclectic side, but I think that uh, makes me somewhat unique in regards to my background and the way I can train people. Nice. Um, One of the things we kind of always like to touch on that, uh, Interesting enough, um, the listeners just always want to hear, what what initially led you into the fitness industry? Sure. You know, growing up, I was always into athletics. I played virtually every sport known to man, and unfortunately, I was never like a superstar at any of them. I played, you know, at a pretty high level throughout all of, uh, you know, high school and college, and I always knew that I wanted to do something that involved sports. The problem for me was, you know, how do I combine sports you know, without just being like just your regular Joe Schmo track coach or football coach. And when I started lifting weights, I was just amazed at the changes that I saw in my own body and the changes that I saw in my performance. So when I went to Ball State, I started majoring in exercise science. I continued playing all the sports, uh, but I really started to focus on how strength training and how athletic or performance-based training could help improve my athletic skills. So I think I was kind of one of those late bloomers 
And I think part of that was, you know, due in part to the fact that I didn't really understand physical training for a long time. And so when I could start putting those two together, my love of weights and my love of athletics, I kind of put them together, and that's kind of what, you know, pushed me to where I am today. I mean, you kind of... Kind of resounding theme. I mean, in most great strength coaches you hear, and it was kind of they had a, they weren't the natural, right. you know, and they right. they ended up having to they had to be the student and right. find out how to get themselves to that next level. Yeah, it's really interesting because you see it in a lot of sports if you start looking for it. Now you look at the NBA. I mean, Phil Jackson, the guy played in the NBA, had you know probably a mediocre career for the most part, at least compared to some of his peers. But now you look at him, he's one of, you know, if not the best coach of all time. So a lot of times it's the guys that aren't the naturals that have to really understand the game or understand the nuances of being a a great team or a great athlete, and those are the guys that really make their mark as coaches. So I think that's absolutely true. Definitely some of the most gifted people are the people who know the least about what they're doing. Yeah. Certainly I've witnessed that many times in bodybuilding, as I'm sure some other people on the show have. So the people that are the greatest champions and legends of the sport really didn't know really that much about what they were actually doing. Yeah. Um, You know, with their genetics and a little bit of drugs and a little bit of training, it just kind of, just kind of happened. Must be rough, right? That's me, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Another thing I kind of noticed, and and you kind of fall into this category too, uh, of late there's a lot of strength coaches and coaches in general that seem to be coming from a powerlifting background. And yep. they're moving on to training athletes. And, uh, you know, what is it you think about that allows powerlifters to make that successful tra- transition into coaching uh, other sports? Well, I think one of the things that, that a lot of athletes gravitate towards is the fact that there's a built-in rapport kind of immediately. You know, if they can see you training hard and pushing yourself and still competing, I mean, honestly, we're not competing maybe on the level that some of our athletes are, but, you know, we're still competitive. We're still pushing ourselves. We're not just kind of sitting there hanging out and just telling them what to do. I think there's a natural rapport that kind of evolves from that that setup or that, that coaching relationship. So I think a lot of times athletes are naturally kind of gravitated towards us. And plus, it's a lot easier to speak your mind or to, to be firm or be direct with an athlete when you're doing those things yourself, there's a certain self-confidence that you have that maybe another coach might not. Because, unfortunately, we've all seen it. You know, the coach that doesn't really train that hard themselves or they don't really take good care of themselves, it's really hard for that people or that person deep down to say, look, this is what you need to be doing because athletes are pretty smart. You know, whether you you think so or not, they can sniff you out, whether you're real or whether you're just kind of talking from a high horse. So I think it's just that built-in rapport that they can they can respect the fact that you're training hard, that you're working towards something, and they know that you value what they're doing. Yeah, Is yeah, that that's a good. You, you know what? Going to interject that you see that in nutrition a lot too, right? I mean, you see a lot of people uh, offering nutrition advice, and and you know you look at them and. I don't know. I, I don't want to say that they discredit themselves because you don't have to have an awesome physique to know what you're doing. But at the same time, I, I think that's a great comment that people who practice what they preach, it does lend an air of credibility to you. Absolutely. I mean, and I'll throw it out there. Is there anything worse than a fat dietitian? You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm like not going how, there. How, yeah, well, <laughs> I can say that. You, you don't have to, but I can say that. You know, I mean, just think about it. There's 
instant credibility built in. I'm not saying you have to be the most jacked person or the strongest person or the most fit person, but there is an instant credibility built in. If you look the part, it goes a long way to building some rapport with your clients or your athletes. Yeah, it's not even looking the part as it is, you know, kind of being the part. Right. <laughs> you know, now, especially in athletics. Right. You know, right. if you can get out there, because I've been around plenty of, you know, guys that have been in the game for years, and, you know, to see a 60, 60-year-old man walk up and, you know, you think he hasn't done a thing, and he's coaching people, and then all of a sudden you piss him off, and he goes out and pulls some amazing lift out of his rear end that yeah. you never thought was there. It's just, boom, yeah. it's, like you said, instant credibility. Absolutely. It's always nice to see the old guy come into the gym and all the young guys are laughing and all of a sudden he starts out squatting all the young guys. <laughs> always fun. Always yeah, a beautiful yeah. sight. I mean, back to the to the uh, the transition of, of powerlifting into training other other sports. Is it, do you think there's actually something about the training as well that maybe leads people are kind of figuring out? I don't know. It helps train other sports. There's there's kind of a more finally. Um, other sports are finally leading into more strength-based training and finding out it does sure. help, whereas before they were kind of shying away from Sure. I, I think that's something that you see, too. You know, there's there's always this pendulum between, you know, pure, like, old-school strength training and more new-age stuff. And, you know, I think I get pigeonholed in that whole corrective exercise element sometimes, and, you know, rightfully so. I do talk about it. But, you know, I think there's always that pendulum going back and forth, and you need a balance and, you know, there are always coaches now that they just honestly aren't good at getting people strong. So they need other tools. They need to, you know, foam roll and, and activate and do core training and all that stuff. But there's always an element to I It's very rare that I see an athlete that's too strong or too powerful. So I think that, that base can't be forgotten. And I know everybody wants to talk about, you know, corrective work and single leg work. And trust me, I'm all for all of those things. I think they're great tools and things that should be used in programs. But at the same time, you can't forget about the basics. You can't forget about, you know, squatting, benching, deadlifting, power cleans, the Olympic lifts. Those things go a long way to building better athletes. Well, I mean, I think that's kind of uh, one of the things that definitely sets you apart. I mean, you you do have and have done a lot of work on mobility and, uh, you know, corrective exercise and um, and such, but yet... You know, you you stress the basics as well, and you're in there in the game doing it, doing sure. it as well. I I kind of don't want to go into the mobility issues too much because we're going to kind of hit that up a little later in the show. But um, yeah, I think that's refreshing. And you see too many people nowadays get they get on one little one little niche too much, and uh, sure, a lot of times at the expense of just flat out training hard with basic moves. Absolutely. Well, I think the thing that a, um, an athlete has to be aware of if they're using, obviously, weight training towards better performance through strength is whereas, whereas the power lifter is always willing to go that extra mile to kind of eke out those few more pounds and potentially hurt themselves or limit themselves in some sort of athletic realm, um, just the generalized athlete who's doing another sport but using that as a means to an end has to be a little bit more aware of uh, trying to minimize some of those you know scrapes and bruises that, that happen along the way in hardcore strength training. Absolutely, and that's something I try and relay to a lot of the clients and athletes that I work with is they have to remember that powerlifting and weights is my sport. It's not their sport. They're training for a specific sport. So if you can kind of relay or convey that to them, like, look, you don't have to go 110% 
I want you to work really hard and I want you to push it, but the last place I want you to get injured is in the gym on my watch. Good, yeah, yeah. If there's like, no, that's what I like to say to people too. I mean, if there's anybody to get injured, do it on the field in, in your competition. You know? Right. That's right. Give your all that day, you know, and, uh, this other stuff, these systems and whatnot kind of, uh, you gotta put it in its place. You know, at, over at the university, there's a couple of strength coaches. We talked about their um, mission statement, so to speak, and one of their responsibilities, in fact, their primary responsibility is to use strength training to prevent injury. Imagine if people were getting hurt on their watch in the weight room, coaches would absolutely have a meltdown over that. Oh. <laughs> yeah, well, it's absolutely. actually interesting you bring that up because I was I was thinking a few minutes ago about um, how strength training if for, for an athlete in another sport could be nothing more but um, you know, preventative towards injury and so forth, and just body integrity and connective t- uh, tissue integrity and that type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I always talk about too often we get diverted to one track or the other, just like you can get caught up in I'm exclusively a barbell guy or a kettlebell guy, whatever. You can get caught up in the either I'm all about performance or I'm all about preventing injury. And I think if you're smart and you train people in a balanced, progressive fashion, you can absolutely do both those things at the same time. As you get somebody moving better and you get them more fluid and more efficient, I think naturally you see this progression where not only do they get stronger and they jump higher and run faster, but they're also more resilient at the same time. So I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think no. you have to be smart, but, you know, it's absolutely doable. Right. Before we get this thing too far into like almost another topic of the day, let's kind of bring it back to Mike for a bit, and then we'll move on to the topic. Um, I want to talk about your new facility you got going sure. on, um, and what can we, uh, what do we got coming out of there, and what can we expect in the future? Absolutely. Well, we are uh, kicking ass and taking names right now. Uh, it's it's absolutely amazing. We were talking about this before we got on earlier, but it's just amazing at how even in the midst of you know an economic downturn or a recession where we're continuing to see our numbers grow month to month. And as we kind of alluded to before, I think in times like this, people may not be spending as much on frivolous things, but they're more than willing to invest in themselves and improving themselves. And we've absolutely seen that at our gym. You know, whether it's athletes or, you know, fat loss clients, we've seen it across the board. We're constantly getting more and more people coming in. What's the name of your gym? Indianapolis Fitness and Sports Training. We just call it IFAST for short because, obviously, (laughs) the full name's a mouthful. Mm -hmm. But one of the cool things we're doing right now is we're calling it the Physique Transformation Challenge. So we're taking four clients, and essentially it's like a real-world biggest loser because if you've seen the show, you know, you – whether you, regardless of what you think about the show in general, as a trainer and as a coach, I've got some issues with how they train the clients on there. And I think people are caught up in the fact that they see people losing 6, 8, 10 pounds a week, and it's not realistic. Absolutely. These guys are they're training in a vacuum. They have, you know, all these hours out of the day they can train. You know, they're preparing their own food. They're in a vacuum. So our job is, to, or what we're trying to do is show people, look, you can absolutely lose weight in a reasonable amount of time training every week. Here's how you do it. So that's what we're doing right now. We're taking four of our clients and basically recording everything they do, what they're doing training-wise. We're taking pictures. We're taking their scale weight. We're taking their body fat. And we're going to track them over the course of 12 weeks and show you what clients can do if they're really serious about training hard and getting their diet and their nutrition in order. 
Well, I mean, that sounds much more real world, I mean, than in the first place. I mean, just for the fact that you're actually taking body fat and lean fats into account is a huge step. Yeah. I mean, uh, Yeah, one of our girls... One of our girls was a little frustrated last week because she dropped a lot of weight initially, mm. and the last two weeks she kind of plateaued a little bit. And you know, she was obviously frustrated. She's training hard. She's tracking all of her diet stuff. I mean, she's on it. And you know, we had the discussion like, look, you know, it's not linear. First of all, you're not going to go straight down. But chances are, you're putting on some muscle too. And she went home that night, and she was frustrated, and she tried on a pair of jeans, and for the ladies that might be listening, she had lost an entire size in about two weeks. I mean, jeans she hadn't fit in in years, all of a sudden, are fitting. So, you know, again, it comes down to we're trying to get them focused on real-world, you know, goals or real-world achievements versus, you know, focused solely on scale weight and, you know, manipulating water and cheating the scale, basically. You know, if I can add something to that quickly, it, it, it's a great example of how, you know, women with resistance training, they tend to become denser and more muscular, and you can't just look at the scale. But another thing that that really emphasizes is that women who weight train do not become giantly massive. She's fitting into super <laughs> jeans, not bigger ones, right? Right, right. Let's let go yeah. of that myth a little bit. Exactly, and and I think that's the best thing for her. It's one way or the other, if you get too focused on one uh, assessment medium, you're going to have problems. Like if you just get caught up solely in the scale, the, the week or two that you don't see the scale results, you're going to get frustrated. But if you have the scale results, if you have the body composition, if you have genes and how your clothes are fitting, now you have several different things that you can base your results on, and it's a lot easier to stick with your programming. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's got to be a, a multifaceted approach, and that's sadly a lot of people don't don't take that. I mean, I try and get uh, I try and get some people to just throw the scale out you know, right. because they rely right. on it so much, and it's like lose that thing. And if you can't do body fat, go on how clothes are fitting you. Go how you look in the mirror. You know. And you know what? Anything you could add numbers to, uh, especially young people that are listening out there. Think like a scientist, right? Add numbers. Quantify. I, I once heard a, a somebody say, uh, it's tough to control what you don't measure. And if yeah. you can measure some things, maybe it's even just your rate of perceived exertion during a workout. You know, how hard did that feel? It was similar weights, but, damn, that felt a lot easier today. You know, yeah. um, all kinds of stuff like that you can log. And the more you log, the more numbers you can look at go up and down, the tighter control you have and the more feedback you have, you know, make you feel good about it. Absolutely. I mean, it's kind of like training hard for powerlifting meet, you know. I mean, I have hundreds of PRs that I have listed, and that's so I can go to one at any given time and show that I'm progressing. And yep. why should it be any different in nutrition and, and body comp? You know, you got to have more than one one scale to uh, yep. gauge your progress on. You know, it could, it could even be, like, let's say vegetables are a big problem, and I don't want to get sidetracked too much, but you can actually say, listen, how many days this week did I eat at least, let's say you're getting used to it, three servings of vegetables, you know, and you can mark how many days out of seven that you were able to do that. And it's a compliance number, and it helps keep you on track, you know. Absolutely, and and that's something we're really trying to gear them towards is, you know, can you eat the way we want you to about 90% of the time? And that's kind of, again, trying to get them in that numbers mindset and trying to get them away from, because I think if you're subjective about it, it's really easy to think, oh, I ate great all week, 
and you end up forgetting about, oh, yeah, but over the weekend I ate out four times and we went out and had, you know, a large blizzard. It's really easy to remember all the good stuff and forget about the bad stuff. So if you start making it numbers-based and more objective versus subjective, you tend to see a lot better results. You know what I see with the subjective thing, too? That's a great point. On the flip side of that, there's a problem, too, where people, if they get real subjective and they do plateau, because they're not measuring anything or looking for successes, like Phil said, they, they, they become kind of hopeless. They get this sense of, I don't know what's going on. I'm stuck. What am I supposed to do? And there's this kind of futility that sometimes they express. And if they were staying more objective, like Mike's saying, then, you know, you can watch those numbers and you can start to say, listen, what variable am I not tracking here? You know, what am, what am I missing? Instead of just throwing your hands up and like, I can't do this. I, I'm not making progress. Absolutely. That's a great point. As far as this, this competition and the other things you got going on, but they can, people can follow it on your website, I take it? The, uh... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my website is generally the easiest way to keep track of the stuff I've got going on. I either blog about it post about it in my newsletter or, you know, I'm starting up the podcast too. So absolutely, one of those three mediums, I'm pretty much talking about everything I got going on. Is your podcast website, is that what you said? Yeah, it's on the website. Yep. Yeah, okay. And that's www.robertsontrainingsystems.com for all you, you listeners out there. Um, and then the, the facility, you can find it at www.ifastonline.com. Um, before we get going on 10,000, uh, different topics. Let's go ahead and uh, shoot this to the topic of the day. You know what, Phil? Can you hit pause, man? <laughs> just just for a second uh, on that little okay. bumper. I just want to read We got an email, and I, I want to try to read these as we get them rather than let them build up on us. Okay. This will make you feel good. Uh, this guy says, uh, Dr. Lowry, I just wanted to send you a quick note to thank you and the other hosts for the podcast. I've learned quite a bit from them, and I really enjoy the conversations you all have. One of the things I would love to hear would be an in-depth discussion on the neuromuscular system and how to best optimize its performance, especially for those who are trying to stay in a weight class. That is, they simply want to have the highest strength-to-weight ratio possible. So uh, he's offering that topic for the future. And so thanks for the email. Yeah, and, um, you know, it's, it, that, that's a, that is that's a cool topic. How do you get strong without putting on too much weight? Yeah, no, that is a good topic. Yeah, well, we'll definitely have to hit that one up in the near future for sure. Um, that'll work. Let's hit it off here. I gotta thank my brother's band for the nice little bumper there. Um, <laughs> uh, what's the brother's name? Band's name? Um, Iron Guts Kelly. There you, know, you go. Find out at That's fitting. Um, fitting. The flight hadn't been taken yet. <laughs> <laughs> nobody, nobody taken Iron Guts Kelly yet. No, no one had taken it yet. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, so today's topic, I'm sure it's one that uh, Mike can add some great insight into. Um, I want to touch on mobility in the strength athlete versus mobility in the average person seeking like general life preparedness. Um, it's kind of something I know we all deal with on a day-to-day basis, and it's a bit of a double-edged sword when it comes to strength or power athletes. You know, and I think people don't realize that. I mean, there's always you hear mobility in always a positive light in that you need more. 
And right. uh, it's not always true. I mean, mobility or lack thereof, um, tightness can also be a, a bonus. You, you need is you need sports-specific mobility, and then maybe a little excess. Well, Lonnie, you once uh, said something very um, astute. You were talking about when we were, you and I were squatting together, and your flexibility is certainly through the groin and so forth is so much greater than mine. And uh, you made the comment that for things like squatting, you might actually have a bit too much uh, flexibility in that region. It's possible. You know, that was a long time ago. I remember that. We were, uh, I had just looked at some research that flexibility could be a detriment in runners because they lack some of that passive tension. And, and, you know, you and I were just kind of theorizing about that. But, yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me, right? I mean, flexibility, sometimes a little bit of uh, soft tissue, you know, a flexibility or uh, elasticity, as it were, you know, could actually benefit you as opposed to having so much flexibility that your butt drops through the floor every time you squat, you know. Right. I mean, it's kind of a point in, I don't know, mobility is a bit of a problem when, I say, um, if it's painful. You know, as long as you're not having pain and you can do your sport pain-free and in an efficient way, then I think it's good. And um, it's just how, it's figuring out what the person needs and and the fact that actual hypermobility can be a bad thing and people just, the general person doesn't realize this. I mean, and that it can, in itself, can lead to injury. Well, I think a lot of people see, um, you know, um, displays in the athleticism of um, flexibility, and they, they they see it in sports like, you know, a martial arts sport or a gymnast-type sport, and they don't realize that that kind of flexibility and mobility is almost like, like you say, it's it's above and beyond what could be considered from, for a day-to-day pragmatic sense um, a good thing, you know, certainly in things like martial arts and so forth. They, they stretch so far beyond you know, um, probably just, you know, um, soft tissue and into actual connective tissue, I would think. Yeah. Well, look at the problem some gymnasts have, you know, with the extreme hyperflexibility of their spine and things like that. I mean, that kind of stuff, um, you know, it'll make you cringe a little bit, if nothing else. And I, I, I don't know, I, I'm not a, I haven't looked at a lot of musculoskeletal research on all that kind of stuff, but you've got to think that over time, you know, contorting yourself seriously, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's going to be always be a good thing. I definitely don't think it is. I mean, when you look at just such a high degree of mobility, especially through the spine, which, you know, we get into that whole discussion of how much flexibility do you really need, especially through the lumbar spine. But you evaluate a lot of these people, and they're so unstable. And just because they have all this mobility doesn't mean they're healthy. That's, I think, a huge issue. People assume, oh, they've got all that range of motion. It doesn't always mean that they're healthy, guys. You can see people that have tons of spinal range of motion. They can do these graceful, fluid movements, and their spines are absolute wrecks. Yeah, lumbar, I was reading about just the other day about how people are naturally uh, hugely variable in how flexible their lumbar spine is, right? Absolutely. And especially when you look at it, I mean, we can look at flexion and extension. If you want to talk about McGill's stuff, he'll basically tell you, look, your spine only has so many flexions and extensions in it. And when you start to run those, run through those, you're going to have back pain. You're going to have back issues. And we can look at rotation where your upper back, your thoracic spine, you actually have more than 70 degrees of rotation up top, whereas in your lumbar spine, you only have about 10 to 15 degrees of actual rotation. So, again, it comes down to not just how much mobility do you have, but where are you getting it from is very important. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a great point. Um, one. 
I mean, one of the things I always deal with, and I know a lot of other power athletes deal with um, whatnot, is just, you know, type this or type that, you know, maybe hips, glutes, <laughs> IT bands, whatever. Um, right. What do you generally find, I mean, say, let's just narrow it down to a power lifter. Um, yep. What would you have them attack on a regular basis as part of their, you know, routine? Yeah. Generally, almost universally for power lifters, you're going to see tension through the pecs and the lats, the hip flexors to some degree. Um, but with power lifters, like you guys were saying, there's an optimal amount of mobility that you need to be successful. We've got a two guys in our gym. One is a power lifter and one's an Olympic lifter. They've both got amazing mobility. But if you watch them squat, it's very different. And Aaron, who's the Olympic lifter, he needs a ridiculous amount of mobility because when he catches a clean, literally his butt's about six inches off the floor. Yeah. Now, in contrast, Lance, who's a power lifter, if he had that much mobility, that's actually going to hinder his squat. He yeah. needs that stiffness. When he hits, you know, just below parallel, he needs that stiffness. That helps him get out of the hole faster and more efficiently. Yeah. So that's what you guys were kind of alluding to. If you have too much mobility, it's going to hold you back. And power lifters are very intuitive, especially high-level ones. They kind of know exactly where they need to go. They get down there in the most efficient manner, and they come out. So that's the big thing. The issue that you see with power lifters is when, you know, Bill and I talk about it, it's called a stiffness imbalance, or basically if you have too much flexibility in one area relative to another. So a lot of power lifters are very strong through their hips. That's why they squat so much. That's why they deadlift so much. And in contrast, their back and their core isn't as strong. It's not as strong as it needs to be, and so you'll see as they get around parallel, they start to tuck under a little bit, and basically that's a relative flexibility issue. Their core and their lower back aren't as strong as their hips are, so it's the path of least resistance. They try and get that last little bit of range of motion. They don't have it at their hips, so their low back substitutes, and that's where you start to see low back injuries in a lot of power lifters. So, I mean, that's what I want to get people thinking about. It's not not having enough mobility necessarily, but it's not having it in the right areas or not having things balanced out. I'm not sure if that really answered the question exactly like you wanted it, but that's what no, I feel. No, but I mean, yeah, I mean, you can't really give a generic, I mean, it's like anything, you can't give a generic training plan if you want it to be a good one. It's kind of individualized. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, so, I mean, that totally makes sense, and, to get off your point there, between the Olympic lifters and power lifters, that's, that's unsanctioned meet I did this weekend was alongside a, a sanctioned uh, USA weightlifting meet. Yeah. And I get out there and I deadlift 709 pounds and all those guys are like, man, we need to get you in Olympic lifting. I was like, shit, it's happened. It takes weight on my back to get me to parallel. You know? right. <laughs> There's no way I'm going to be a good Olympic lifter just because I can pick up heavy things. You know, it's two totally different sports, and I just wasn't built for that naturally. But, um, absolutely, and that's where your stiffness that you've developed to be a good power lifter would absolutely hold you back as an Olympic lifter. Yeah. How for long sure. would it take you to to develop that kind of flexibility or that kind of mobility to squat the way you need to squat to be successful in Olympic lifting? I mean, it could take a year or more. I don't know. So. Right. Well, I mean, for years training as a bodybuilder, I I trained exclusively um, on Olympic lifts. Um, high bar, narrow stands, and quite truthfully, my my strongest um, lifts are still with that style. But I'm I'm finding that the depth that I can hit because I I kind of come from the whole Tom Platts mold of you know ask the ground Olympic lifting kind of thing. But the whole thing is I'm finding is that that depth is actually 
hindering me a lot because it's you know several inches below where I would need to be. So if I just widen my stance a little bit, I, I find myself having a heck of a lot more um, resistance mobility-wise going down, but that is actually helping me gauge you know, where I should be and, you know, a few inch or extra inches going down is not, you know, um, conducive to anything really. So yeah, yeah, it's kind of a marker. Of, I can feel that marker of stiffness. Okay. There, there's where I should be. Yep. And I think, I mean, the number one thing people need to do is either themselves or better yet, find a qualified professional to help them figure out what your goals are mm-hmm. and just how darn mobile do you need to be for your sport? You know, and and actually figure it out instead of, you know, blindly running at something and thinking you need this or that. And, you know, it's like anything else. I mean, you need to devote the right amount of time to it. If you're devoting too much or too little, you're you're wasting your time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this reminds me a lot of a conversation I've had for years with students, which is I, I tell them the best athletes in any sport are actually less fit, right? When you think about the five components of classic physical fitness that yeah. – Actually, less fit. You know, the power lifter is going to grab his knees after he goes up ten flights of stairs. You know, sometimes, or because of the well, there's a lot of things going on there. But or the runner is going to have you know less strength, or some groups are going to have less flexibility because there's a specialization that's important, and that means you're going to not everybody wants to be a, a cross trainer, and that's one of the things that disturbs me a little bit about some of the stuff that I see online lately. Is there's so much talk about. I, I don't know, it, about all these different facets, that it starts to make me feel like, is everybody just going to be a cross trainer? Because yeah. then we're not bodybuilders and we're not power lifters. We're kind of fit across the board. But that's not always going to help you be the best at, at what you're trying to specialize in. Yeah. yeah, it's the proverbial jack of all trades, master of none, really. Exactly. Yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a big, uh, a big uh, and kind of a resounding theme through it. But it's interesting how when you're in the gym, people automatically in our society think that if you're going to the gym, you're there because you're trying to lose weight or, or be healthy. And, yeah. you know, they see you lifting heavy weight, and they're like, oh, that can't be healthy. And you're like, <laughs> it's like, I'm, I'm actually not here trying to be healthy. I'm trying to be a freak, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's, but, but it's just that kind of that ingrained mentality that if you're doing any sort of sport or physical activity, then the, the goal must be to be healthy and to be fit and to be, you know what I mean? If that was, honestly, I think just having a really high body mass index is probably not a good thing, even if it's not body fat. I mean, if you're walking around with a, you know, huge weight to height ratio, that's extra pounding on your joints, it's extra myocardial work, it's extra, extra, extra. And the goal of most powerlifters, I don't think, is to live to be 115. No. (laughs) Exactly. That's something I said this week to, to several people, and I was like, you know, I'd rather live 100 years and 50 than I would live uh, to be 100 years and only live 50 of them. That's <laughs> yeah. I'm looking to die soon, but I, I, I'm looking to do something in the time I do have. No, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I'm the same way. I don't want to give up a huge chunk of what I could potentially live to be, but at the same time, I, I really have, would have no problem, you know, giving away five, several years if it, if it meant that, you know, during the years I was alive, I was doing things, you know, that, that made me happy and proud and, you know, fulfilled me athletically I mean for sure but I mean that that's something that everybody has to kind of determine for themselves right plus as we get older right I mean as all of us are getting a little bit older how old are you Mike I'm 30 30 so, yeah so you know 10 10 years down the road or, or 15 I mean there is such a thing as abusive training too because I did it for a long time I didn't take care of myself really I just 
really, you know, was too aggressive in the gym. Yeah. And uh, you got to think about that, too. I mean, you do take a bite out of life, but you try to balance it with some sense as well. And, and that's a skill that I think you develop with experience. But you don't want to pound yourself so, you're, you know, you're completely uh, ruined uh, in your 50s either. You have to have some respect that you're, you're probably going to be alive through your 50s and 60s, and you, you still want to be more functional than most men. Yeah, well, sure. for, you know, a few years ago, as you know, Lonnie, I, I took up running for, for a reason that wasn't, you know, um, devoted towards health. But as it happens, I kind of, you know, um, I wouldn't say fell in love with running because I don't think I'll ever fall in love with running. But so not know, I, I kind of the appreciation for, for the, the skill of it and, and for the health benefits that come from it. So, and, you know, that certainly for somebody like myself and guys like me and Phil and that who are big men, it. You know, that's some. You get to a certain age, and you realize, like you say, you know, you're not you're you're going to be one day, fifty, sixty years old, and you want to have a little bit of mobility and a little bit of athleticism, and certainly some heart health. So, yeah, I think that's one of the things that's really cool. Like, okay, I'm thirty, and I feel like I've learned a lot in the ten years that I've been in the industry. What I think is going to be really cool is the fact that we're going to be able to combine all the knowledge that we've started to accumulate, and some of these younger guys that we're coaching at our gym. I mean. They're going to be, you know, my age and be healthier and be stronger and more fit. I mean, that's what's really cool. So, you know, oh, a little of course, bit off yeah. Topic, I mean, that's that's definitely. I mean, yeah, that in itself a topic. I mean, but I mean, that's the neat thing. And the people we learn from, you know, the yeah. same way. You know, it's yeah. this big, it's this big thing, and it's about passing it on, man. I, that's, I think I was just going to say, it's about passing it on. It, it's part of the reason we started this podcast, you know, n- not having uh, 22-year-old guys trying to reinvent the wheel and make all these trial and error mistakes when we can just try to tell them like it is with our experience and they can pick and choose what fits, you know. Right. Well, man, we've ran off about 18 different directions here. Um got a few questions, <laughs> so let's uh, go ahead and hit those up. Um, Greg in Camarillo, um, he sits at a desk eight hours every day. At his workplace, um, his workplace will not provide him with a chair that fits his six foot five frame. He has back pain under his shoulders, under his shoulder blades, with some low back pain every day. What are three things I can do to counteract this situation when I'm at the gym? Keep up the great work, Mike. Thanks, Greg. Stand up once in a while. Well, yeah, that's that's number one. I was going to give him three things he could do outside of the gym because honestly, he's probably spending twenty three of his days or twenty three hours out of the day, not in the gym. Right. So one one thing I was going to tell them right off the bat, I tell all my clients, if possible, to do this, ditch the chair from time to time. Obviously, stand up. That's great. One of the things I have a lot of my clients do is get an Airx pad or a rolled-up towel, anything, and I'll actually have them do lunge stretches at their desk. You know, So you're sitting there working, typing away. Yeah, you may look a little weird, but it's better than having a wrecked back all the time. So getting those hips out of flexion, getting them into extension, and have them work there. A second thing that I have a lot of my clients do is what I call the 15-minute rule. Basically, whether they have an iPhone, uh, an alarm, an outlook, whatever the case may be, I have a reminder that goes off every 15 minutes, something that beeps at them or chimes, just to get them thinking about, okay, every 15 minutes I need to reset my posture, or I need to stand up, or I need to take a walk around you know, the office real quick. That's Anything brilliant. I can... Yeah, anything I can do to get them out of that position, because there's actual research, research out there that shows at about 20 minutes, adaptive shortening or soft tissue creep sets in. So essentially, your body starts to shorten up. So that's what I'm trying to convince these people to do. Look, you're going to sit eight hours out of the day. We can't fix that. 
but what are some things we can do to try and break that cycle to get you moving more? And then as far as weight room stuff goes, absolutely, whenever you get there, stretch your hip flexors, do whatever you can, focusing more, so more of the stress or more of the workload on your posterior chain, pull-throughs, RDLs, deadlifts, to try and balance that out a little bit. But if you take advantage of the things you can do at work, it's absolutely going to make a bigger difference when you get into the gym after work. I love that reminder thing. I used to say the same thing about nutrition, guys trying to gain weight, you know, set your alarm for every two hours. Or, But, God, yeah. that 20-minute thing, that adaptive shortening after just 20 minutes, that's almost scary when I think how much time <laughs> I just in the car this last week, you know. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. That's why you got to constantly remind your body, look, don't, you know, don't go there. I need this length. I need, you know, these hip flexors to be long and pliable. You know, I don't want my chest shortened. I get that enough when I bench Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So, you know, you got to constantly remind your body that it has optimal position. Yeah. Great. Is there anything to be said? I know something I use and started using. I had low back pain and uh, some hip and glute pain. Uh, a, a fitness ball, a Swiss ball at my desk. You know, do yep. you uh, use that at all? Or? The only the only issue that you see with that is too often people kind of overcorrect. And you'll see them like start to get too much extension through their lower back or they really start to engage their hip flexors. So, you know, I'll use them, but it depends on the person and I, I want to make sure I'm coaching them and making sure they're sitting in the right position. Um, that's the biggest issue is people, you know, you guys can probably see, vouch for this as well, but just a lot of people don't have good body awareness now. So I'm really leery of having them do anything for too long without me being able to supervise them at least a little bit. Right. Okay. Andrew in uh, Salisbury, United Kingdom. Is there wow. such thing as underactive lats? I seem to never get lat soreness and rarely feel them working. I get doms in my rotator cuff, rear delt, and mid-back with nothing in my back. Um, I train using the basics, pull-ups with different grips, one-arm rows, seated cable rows. I'd be pleased to hear any input you may have. Hmm. That's somewhat intriguing. I can't say I've ever heard of that before. Um, the thing that I would naturally start to think about is I would want to look at his posture. Something kind of tells me that maybe he has like a kyphotic type posture where he's got too much slouching of his torso. And essentially what that does, it lengthens everything out. So like his rhomboids, his lats would all be lengthened to some extent. And so maybe he's just not getting the same neural drive that he should. It'd be like if somebody went to squat all the time and they had a wicked anterior pelvic tilt, they would never really feel anything in their glutes. That's the only thing I could really think of off the top of my head without actually watching him perform the lifts. I'm sorry, Phil, how, how uh, long did you say he was training? Or did it say anything about experience? It doesn't, no, it doesn't say. You know, this say. is I'm not a kinesiologist, and please, everybody, listen to Mike over me, but... One of the things that I've always thought about, my brother and I used to talk about this, is that you actually have to get kind of used to targeting your lats. I mean, when people first start training their lats, whether it's seated cable rows or pull-downs or whatever, they tend to engage their biceps a lot and yeah. almost anything but their lats. And sometimes I yeah. almost think, like, the more lat mass you have and the more experience you have, the easier it is to feel like you're engaging them. So maybe this guy just doesn't uh, – he doesn't feel like he's engaging them because he, you know that that comes with a little bit more lat mass and a little bit more experience, so you can actually sense what's going on. Just a that's, thought. No, that's a great point. Actually, I was I thought about mentioning something along those lines, but you'll see a lot of people 
they just can't initiate any kind of row or pull up using, like you said, their back. Mm-hmm. They're always going to initiate because they've spent so much time focusing on their arms and their biceps. Yeah. Strangely enough, that's actually a dominant muscle group in that pattern. They're much more dominant pulling using their arms and using their biceps first versus using their lats or their rhomboids. So, no, I think that's a great answer. Oh, nope. yeah. No, that was definitely something that I had to work on myself. And it was a, it was a case of both, you know, learning how to use the lats but getting those scaps retracted and seated to be yep. able to because mm-hmm. people tend to be protracted so much. And then yep. you're really pulling through the arms. Well, I remember uh, years and years ago, Rich Gasparri, the old uh, – Dragon Slayer professional bodybuilder once said that when he first moved out to California and he was at uh, World Gym that Joe Gould came over to him once when he was using like monster weight on his cable rows and so forth and said, you know, you got big arms, kid, but a crappy back. He says, you know what? All your back <laughs> movements cut everything in half, all your weights. And he did that and he said, you know, within several weeks he was noticing a difference. And I, I think everybody on the show can <laughs> can vouch for the fact that I think. Ninety-five percent of people in gym use much too much weight for their back movements, um, because it just takes them away from you know being being able to make that connection with their back. Fortress, you you probably also remember I in the back in the day Gary Stridham once said you know like wisdom from the mouths of babes here, but he once said think of your hands as hooks, you know they're just a hook attaching your lats to the bar. And honestly, that kind of advice, that helped me a little bit when I was trying to learn how to feel my lats in different movements. You know, your hands are just hooks. Oh, I always say that to clients. I would say just think of your your arms and your hands as conduits between the, the resistance and what's actually trying to be the engine pull the weight. You know, and if you can try and get your mind into that co- whole concept of, yeah, that's just the line between the engine and the resistance, um, but nothing more, then people can really start thinking about that. Yeah, yeah no, I mean, I agree. One of the ways that I actually got around it and actually started using my back was I, I like fashioned a weird dog leash up to where I could hook it around my wrist into the cable machine that I couldn't use my hands. Everything was pulled directly through the wrist and uh, really, you know, topping how to use my back. But uh, Yeah. You know, one of the interesting things I've seen, I don't know if you guys have seen this as well, but it kind of goes back to the uh, cut the weight in half. With a lot of our clients, we'll start them off if they have shoulder issues or they're really protracted through their shoulder girdle. We'll start them off with real low-level stuff like scap circuits, I's, T's, Y's, that kind of stuff. And it's almost amazing. Like little stuff like that, if you give them that for a couple weeks, then you slowly start adding in the bigger, more compound lifts. It's amazing. Their backs just blow up because it's like all of a sudden they're like, oh, wow, they don't have that preconceived notion when they're doing an ITY that they should be using, you know, X amount of pounds. They just know, this is what I should feel, and all of a sudden, you know, they're like, oh, my God, I can actually feel those muscles. They're absolutely crushed after doing I's, T's, and Y's, you know, and I'm like, dude, it's just your arms, man. You know, it shouldn't be that hard, but you just give them that. Those can be humbling lifts. I mean, even for somebody who's been into it, I mean, well, I I had my rotator cuff injury, and, uh, you know, I can can lift up some okay weights, and I was sitting there with, like, five-pound dumbbells and not liking it. <laughs> you yeah, know, absolutely. And it's just using things you're not used to. So absolutely. Well, guys, I think uh, let's call it today. We only got a couple minutes left here, and uh, just want to thank you again, Mike, for for joining us. Yeah, uh, thanks, Mike. Hey, everybody, my pleasure, check guys. out. Everybody, uh, go to Mike's website. Um, it's uh, RobertsonTrainingSystems.com and iFastOnline.com, and uh, we will see you next week. Thanks a lot. Yeah, it's great, great to have a quality guest. Oh, yeah. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio online.
interested in starting a diet or an exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress.